So in chapter 42, the Lord tells this group of Israelites through Jeremiah, do not go to Egypt. What do you think they do in chapter 43? <laughs> yes. It's not called the book of failures for nothing. But we can learn from them. Do you remember where we are in the story? We covered a lot of ground last week. We are in the chaos that came after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. In chapter 39, we read about the walls of Jerusalem being breached and the city being burnt, just like Jeremiah said it would. King Nebuchadnezzar took over, just like Jeremiah said he would. Nebuchadnezzar blinded Zedekiah and drug him off to Babylon, just like Jeremiah said he would. King Nebuchadnezzar installed a man named Gedaliah to be the leader of the people of Judah and took Jeremiah out of captivity and put him into Gedaliah's care. Gedaliah offered for the Jews left over in the land to settle down and submit to Nebuchadnezzar and be blessed. But one of the leaders assassinated Gedaliah while they were eating together, Ishmael. And Ishmael then massacred many more people and led a rebellion against Babylon. Does this sound familiar? I know we covered a lot of ground last Sunday. Another one of Gedaliah's leaders chased down and fought Ishmael. His name was Yohanan, son of Kariah. And Yohanan won the fight, even though Ishmael himself escaped. But Yohanan rescued the hostages, one of whom was probably Jeremiah himself. And they hightailed it south to Gerath Kimham near Bethlehem. That's where they were at the end of chapter 41. They were scared that Babylon was going to blame them and punish them for Ishmael's rebellion. They were scared of Nebuchadnezzar's retribution, even though they had been opposed to it. They, they figured Nebuchadnezzar was going to say, the only good Israelite is one who's dead or who doesn't have a sword. So they're trying to come up with a plan for what to do next. What's next? Well, their idea is to go to Egypt. That's often been a tempting idea for Israelites when they feel pressure from other nations. They get the idea that it would be smart to head down to Egypt land. Why? Well, Egypt represents power and stability. Yes, Egypt lost to Nebuchadnezzar in the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. But Nebuchadnezzar hasn't actually come down and taken over Egypt. They seem safe from him at this point. A few years back, you might remember this from a few weeks back, Egypt attacked Babylon. And that drew Nebuchadnezzar's men off of the siege of Jerusalem. Remember how, he, how the Pharaoh kind of got Nebuchadnezzar's attention with an attack? Egypt seems strong, always seems strong and powerful and maybe safer than all the other alternatives. So Yoanan, he apparently is now in charge since Gedaliah has been killed, and he and his buddies are thinking about taking this big group of Israelites out of the now-occupied territory of Judah into the land of Egypt. But first they had a great idea, and it's the best idea they ever had. They decide to ask old man Jeremiah if they should. Look with me now at chapter 42, verse 1. Then all the army officers, including Joanon, son of Korea, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshaiah, and all the people from the least of these approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. 
For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. All right. Hey, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Now, I have a feeling that they're, what they're really saying is, please ask the Lord to bless our plans to go to Egypt. But that's not what they say. They say, tell us where we should go and what we should do. And Jeremiah says, okay, I'll pray for that. And then I will. Verse 4. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us, for we will obey the Lord our God. I wish we could just stop right there this morning. Just say, amen, sounds good, let's go home. It does sound really good. What they say is really good, and it would be good for you and me to follow their example here and to say the exact same things. We will obey the Lord our God. Where you lead me, I will follow. And they get a good return back, a good word back. Ten days later, the Lord speaks, verse 7. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I am grieved over the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. Oh, doesn't that sound good? I wish we could stop right there. The Lord tells these people to stay put, to stay in the land of Judah. And he gives them some big promises if they do. Did the wording of these promises sound familiar to you? It should. I will build you up and not tear you down. That's from chapter 1, isn't it? What the Lord said he was going to do through Jeremiah, there were six things. Two of them were build and plant. Here's the other one. I will plant you and not what? Uproot you, right? That's the whole title of our series, isn't it? It all ties together. This language flows throughout the whole book. The Lord says that he is grieved or he relents from this disaster he's inflicted on them. It has hurt him, so to speak, to destroy his beloved Jerusalem and if they will obey him now, he won't have to keep the judgment coming. He's not saying that he's made a mistake. He's pleading with them to not make the same mistake they have before. So they have a different outcome this time. Stay. If they stay in Judah, they'll be blessed. Just like the ones that are now taken off into Babylon. They should settle down and pray for the shalom of Babylon. Chapter 29. So the Lord will give those surviving Israelites shalom in Babylon and these in Judah. They have nothing to fear. 
Not even Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world at this point. And they say, you don't have to be scared of him. Yahweh says it to them three times in one verse. Do you see that? Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord. Why? Because there's somebody more strong than the most powerful man in the world. He says, for I am with you. And I will save you and deliver you from his hands. That's the same thing he promised Jeremiah back in chapter 1. He now promises it to them if they just stay in the land. This is God's heart for his people. These are the wonderful promises that are akin to the promises of 2911. Those plans he knows that he has for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us hope and a future. They all come from his heart. I will have compassion so that Nebuchadnezzar will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. This is God's heart for God's people. But there's a flip side to God's promises, and that is God's threats. Look at verse 13. However, If you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war, or hear the trumpet, or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you are determined to go to Egypt, and you do do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. He knows which they're going to choose. You will be an object of cursing and horror, of condemnation and reproach. You will never see this place again. O remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this. I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says and we will do it. I have told you today, but you still have not obeyed the Lord your God and all he sent me to tell you. So now be sure of this. You will die by the sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to go to settle. So the Lord wants them to stay. And he warns them through Jeremiah that if they go to Egypt like they're tempted to, everything they're scared of happening to them in Judah will actually happen to them in Egypt. God says, do not go to Egypt. That way lies death. If you obey and stay, you'll be blessed. If you disobey and go to Egypt, you'll be in danger. It's that simple. Jeremiah says, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Right? Thanks for asking. And so having listened to Jeremiah for the last 40 years and seeing that everything he prophesied came true just like he said, including both God's good promises and his awful threats, these Israelites believed Jeremiah and settled down right where they were in Judah. And we're blessed. (laughs) I wish. 
That's not what they did. Not at all. You can tell that Jeremiah knew what they were going to do before they did it anyway. He should be used to it by now. They don't listen. They decide to go to Egypt. In fact, even worse, they called Jeremiah a liar. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah son of Hoshaiah and Joanan son of Kareah and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You're lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, You must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. Now that's a conspiracy theory if I ever heard one. Mr. Blessing? Jeremiah's administrative assistant, Baruch, is pulling the strings behind the scenes and getting Jeremiah to say these things so they all end up in the hands of the Babylonians? I don't think so. I think they just plain old don't want to do what Jeremiah says to do. They know better. I have just two points of application for this message today, and they are both what we can learn from these folks' failures. Here's number one. They ignored God's promises and broke theirs. Failure. They ignored God's promises and they broke their promises. God told them how good it would be if they stayed in Judah and how hard it would be if they went to Egypt and they just plain ignored him. They put their fingers in their ears. Jeremiah has seen it all before. He could say, here they go again. They ask me what they should do, and then they do the exact opposite. Now, I, Pastor Matt, of course, have never done this before, and neither have you, right? (laughs) It's much easier to ask God to bless our plans than it is to submit to his. But that's where the true blessing lies, isn't it? They ignored God's promises. In fact, they accused Jeremiah of being a false prophet. I think that might be the worst thing Jeremiah was ever called, right? I mean, they could have called him a depressing prophet, that would be true, or a discouraging prophet, because he often wasn't there to encourage them. He wasn't Caleb, positive encouraging all the time. But he was never a false prophet. He was a faithful one. Jeremiah faithfully shared God's promises and his threats, and these people disregarded both. And then they willfully went their own way. God said, don't Do not go to Egypt. So that's what they did. Look at verse 4. So Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they'd been scattered. These folks were refugees that had returned, and now they're leaving once again. They also led away all the men, women, and children, and the king's daughters, whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had left with Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah, probably against their will. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord, and went as far as Ta-Pan-Hes. 
Do you know what they forgot? They forgot how bad it was in Egypt. They forgot their slavery in Egypt. They forgot their bondage in Egypt. They forgot that the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. On Wednesday nights, we're studying the book of Exodus in prayer meeting. God rescues his people out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And now here at kind of the, almost the end of the Old Testament, or almost the end, the end of 2 Kings, the end of Jeremiah, the story of Jeremiah, they've gone full circle and they're back in Egypt again. That's what sin is, isn't it? Believing the tempting lie that, that, that sin promises all this good stuff and ignoring the greater promise of God. Egypt promises all kinds of things, power, prosperity, pleasure, security. But the Lord says, do not go to Egypt. Trust me. It's the land of slavery and death. Now, it's not Egypt itself that was the problem. It was choosing Egypt over God. Jeremiah and Baruch were not sinning because they were taken captive into Egypt. Neither was Joseph when he was. Neither was Jacob when Joseph brought him there in God's will at the end of Genesis. And of course, it wasn't wrong for baby Jesus and his family to be refugees in Egypt for a time to escape from King Herod. But these folks, they were specifically told to stay home in Judah and they ignored God's promises and broke their own. They had said, we will obey the Lord our God. And it didn't last for 11 days. Can we learn from their failure? Can we listen to God's promises and keep ours? Even if what we then promised, we promised then, we don't really want to do now. Because the Lord is sure to keep his promises. That's the point of the next section, verse 8. In Tapan Hes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews are watching, take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapan Hes. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, I'll never get over those words, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan, king of Babylon, And I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd wraps his garment around him, so he will wrap Egypt around himself and depart from there unscathed. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. I love it that that Jeremiah gets to do another weird prophetic object lesson, even in captivity in Egypt, right? He's always getting to do these weird things that have this symbolic meaning. Here he's supposed to bury these big stones near Pharaoh's palace in Tapan Hes. I have no idea how he pulls that off. I'm sure that Pharaoh wouldn't be too good with this plan. 
Especially if he found out what these rocks then symbolized. Here's what they symbolize. Egypt is not safe. Egypt is not safe. It's not safe from Nebuchadnezzar. And it's certainly not safe from God. God will send Nebuchadnezzar, his servant, even there. And he'll set up his throne right over those stones. And Nebuchadnezzar attacked Egypt in 582 B.C. and 568 B.C. And he got out of it unscathed. God always keeps his promises and his threats. Let's not forget. Egypt is not safe. And neither are Egypt's gods. The Egyptians love their many gods. And the Israelites were always tempted by them. But Jeremiah says that all idols are like scarecrows in a melon patch, ineffectual and lifeless and losers. But these Israelites have still not yet learned that lesson, which is the point of chapter 44. Look with me at verse 1. This word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews living in lower Egypt, in Migdol, Tapanhes, and Memphis, and in upper Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You saw the great disaster I brought on Jerusalem and all the towns of Judah. Today they lie deserted and in ruins because of the evil they have done. They provoked me to anger by burning incense and by worshiping other gods that neither you, neither they nor you nor your fathers ever knew. Again and again I sent my servants, the prophets, who said, Do not do this detestable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their wickedness or stop burning incense to other gods. Therefore, my fierce anger was poured out. It raged against the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and made them desolate ruins they are today. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Have you been listening to Jeremiah for the last 10 months? It sure does. Even though Jeremiah is now a captive refugee in Egypt, he is still a broken record about the broken covenant. It seems that some time has passed between chapters 43 and 44. The surviving Israelites have settled in several different places in Egypt, even though they never should have. And now the Lord is sending them a message about their continued idolatry. And the message started with a lesson from history. You saw... The great disaster I brought on Jerusalem and on all the towns of Judah. You saw that, right? You remembered why that happened, right? Well, now you've gone down to Egypt and nothing has changed. If anything, you guys down in Egypt have dug in deeper into worshiping idols. Why are you doing that? Look how he interrogates them in verse 7. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Why? Why bring such great disaster on yourselves by cutting off from Judah the men and women, the children and infants, and so leave yourselves without a remnant? Why'd you go to Egypt? Why provoke me to anger with what your hands have made, burning incense to other gods in Egypt where you've come to live? Didn't I tell you they're going to be carted away by Nebuchadnezzar? Didn't I tell you those obelisks that Egypt is so famous for are going down? You will destroy yourselves. 
and make yourselves an object of cursing and reproach among all the nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness committed by your fathers and by the kings and queens of Judah and the wickedness committed by you and your wives in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? To this day they have not humbled themselves or shown reverence. Nor have they followed my law and the decrees I set before you and your fathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am determined to bring disaster on you and to destroy all Judah. I will take away the remnant of Judah who were determined to go to Egypt to settle there. They will all perish in Egypt. They will fall by the sword or die from famine. From the least to the greatest, they will die by sword or famine. They will become an object of (laughs) cursing and horror. Not koror. (laughs) Cursing and horror of condemnation and reproach. I will punish those who live in Egypt with the sword, famine, and plague as I punish Jerusalem. None of the remnant of Judah who have gone to live in Egypt will escape or survive to return to the land of Judah to which they long to return and live. None will return except a few fugitives. He says no one has learned anything. It's like you haven't been reading the book of failures. You might think that after having watched Jerusalem fall. You saw the Babylonian invaders tear down the walls. You saw the temple go up in flames. You fled with your life, with your family's lives. After having seen that, you might consider your ways. But these folks clearly have not. Here's how I want to say point number two. And last, here's how they failed in chapter 44. They ignored God's story and told themselves wrong ones. These Israelites living in Egypt ignored God's story and told themselves false stories in its place. The history lesson is God's story. He's been telling them this story that they're living in year after year after year. He's been sending these prophets to tell them that same story. He's been telling them what's up through Jeremiah for more than 40 years now. And they have disregarded his story and told themselves one they like better. Stories about idols and how great they are. Look at verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods... These are Jews. Along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, we will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. They said that. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven. And will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our fathers, our kings, and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. The women added, When we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes like her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? We're in this together. 
you believe these words? You have to give them credit for their honesty, right? There are no fakes. They're not saying one thing and doing another. They're not hypocrites. These folks are saying, we are going to worship our idols. Thank you very much. That's it. End of story. Blatant, defiant, idolatrous. The fall of Jerusalem has not changed them. I almost wish that I titled this message from verse 17, We Will Certainly Do Everything We Said We Would. Because last week's sermon title was, He Has Done Just As He Said He Would. And there's a battle of wills here. But this is terrible what they said they were going to do. They're going to worship the same goddess that Jeremiah was preaching against in his famous temple sermon back in chapter 7. Remember the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He was railing against how they were worshiping this queen of heaven. Probably the goddess Ishtar of Babylon, also known as Anet and Ashtoreth and Astart. Different names for different places. Pretty much the same goddess. Probably the planet Venus being worshipped as the goddess of war, of love, and fertility. You remember those queenie cakes that the whole family could make together for family worship time? Everybody can be involved. And they taste so good. These people promised to worship her. Right to Jeremiah's face. And look at the story they tell themselves about what it's like to worship her. Look again at verse 17. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. In other words, worshiping idols really works. We're not giving them up. They're our ticket to prosperity and joy. In fact, when Josiah made us stop doing it, that's when things fell apart. Everything started to fall apart when we stopped worshiping the queen of heaven. Do you see how they've bought into a false narrative about how the world works? That's how sin works, isn't it? Satan feeds us a lie about how the world works and we just bite right into it like a queenie cake. We tell ourselves all kinds of stories about how our idols will make us happy. If I dedicate my life to this over here, then I'll be satisfied. Have you ever said that? I know I have. An idol is anything that takes the place that God deserves in our lives. It could be anything. Most of the time, it's not as blatant as the queen of heaven. It's often money. That's why Jesus has a name for it, mammon, the god of stuff. Could be sex. Could be family. Could be sports. Could be entertainment. Could be work. Workaholism. Could be a particular relationship. It's often a good thing that's been morphed into a God thing in our lives, taking God's place. And we tell ourselves it's no big deal. In fact, we tell ourselves that our idol is a good thing that actually makes our lives work. What's wrong? No. What wrong stories have you been telling yourself recently? What false narratives have you sold to yourself. I often use gluttony as an illustration of this, my own gluttony. I tell myself that a big second helping will be just the thing to make me happy. It'll give me more strength. I deserve it. 
It'll go to waste if I don't put it inside of me. Last time I ate a second plateful, I was so happy afterwards. My life was just a dream. Yes, I've said that to myself. Not out loud. If I sit at the table, my family looks at me, right? Is that true? No, of course it isn't. But I have spun that story to myself to motivate myself to feed my idolatry. Quite literally. What wrong stories have you been telling yourself recently? These folks told themselves that worshiping the Queen of Heaven was better than worshiping the Lord of Heaven and Him alone. And they should have known better. So one more time, old man Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel, right now living in Jerusalem. These are actually the last recorded words of Jeremiah in history. The things we're going to read in the next few chapters were written earlier. These are the last ones we have historically. And what Jeremiah had to say was the same kind of thing he's been saying for the last four decades. Verse 20. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, both men and women who were answering him, Did not the Lord remember? And think about the incense burned in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem by you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land. Here's the real story. When the Lord could no longer endure your wicked actions and the detestable things you did, your land became an object of cursing and a desolate waste without inhabitants as it is today. Because you have burned incense and have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed him or followed his law or his decrees or his stipulations, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including the women, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah and Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. You and your wives have shown by your actions what you promised when you said, we will certainly carry out the vows we made to burn incense and pour out drink offerings to the queen of heaven. Go ahead then, do what you promised. Keep your vows. Oh sure, now keep your promises. But hear the word of the Lord, all Jews living in Egypt. I swear by my great name, says the Lord, that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt will ever again invoke my name or swear as surely as the sovereign Lord lives. For I am watching over them for harm, not for good. The Jews in Egypt will perish by sword and famine until they are all destroyed. Those who escape the sword and return to the land of Judah from Egypt will be very few. Then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt will know whose word will stand. Mine or theirs. This will be the sign to you that I will punish you in this place, declares the Lord, so that you will know that my threats of harm against you will surely stand. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to hand Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, over to his enemies who seek his life. Just as I handed Zedekiah, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the enemy who was seeking his life. And that's exactly what happened. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if Judah is going to continue to act like Judah, even in Egypt, then the Lord will treat him like he did when they were in Jerusalem. And the fate of the Pharaoh will show that Yahweh means business. These stories by themselves are not very encouraging. The chaos of the immediate aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem, it's not very heartwarming. You may have hoped to hear something more inspiring this morning at church. But this is the word of the Lord to us. 
We see their failures. And we're reminded of our own. We have at times ignored God's promises and broken our own. We have at times ignored God's story and told ourselves false ones. We too have gone to Egypt and worshipped other gods before Yahweh. Until we truly see our sin, we can't truly comprehend our salvation. Here's God's story. God sent his son for people who did all of that. I don't know about you, but I would not have, I would have given up on these people. I would have ended the Old Testament right there. And there would be no new. I wouldn't promise them a hope and a future. I would not have sent my son in their place. But God did. God so loved his enemies that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you put your faith and trust in him? If not, I invite you to do so right now. These sad stories may not have been what you wanted to hear this morning at church, but this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And we can learn from their failures. It is much easier to just ask the Lord to bless our plans than to submit to his, but this is the true way of blessing. Let's believe God's promises and his threats. And keep our promises to obey him. And let's believe God's story, including the hard parts, the the sharp parts, and continue to tell ourselves the true story, the way it really is, and root out and topple every idol that threatens to take his place. And then we'll be blessed. I think that verse 27 of chapter 44 is the scariest verse out of the whole bunch where the Lord says that he's watching over them for harm, not for good. That's the same word that we've memorized. Well, the the watching over is the same word in chapter one to say that he's watching over his word to see that it's fulfilled, keeping constant watch. It's also the exact same word in chapter 29, verse 11 that we've memorized for harm, As long as they persisted in rebelling against them, he's watching over them for harm, not for good. But when we repent and put our faith in the Lord, he promises us the exact opposite of harm. He promises us shalom. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's God's story. Let's believe it. Amen? Amen.